Hey lunatics, you're listening to Let the Meat Grass, a podcast exploring real food, broken ecosystems, and a better way to live. I'm Austin Williams, your farmer and podcast host. Before I began farming, I was a public school teacher who had grown up in the suburbs of St. Louis. And if you were like me, you had no idea what was real or who to trust when it came to our food. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a chance you've begun to doubt what huge food corporations are trying to sell you is as healthy as it's cracked up to be. And for good reason. I'm dedicating this show to you, the lunatics, the crazies, who have chosen to opt out, to stray beyond the safe and familiar confines of grocery store walls to support a farmer. And not just any farmer, but a farmer whose mission is to heal the land and nourish the people. You see, conventional farms are dying. We've been losing farmers for well over a century now. When 100% of us eat and only 1% of us farm, we have a math problem. Help me do the math by sticking around, listening closely, and voting with your forks to support real food. See you soon. Sorry for the wait, lunatics. I'm back. Well, maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't, but let me be your guide. I'm talking about the plant protein-based burger that promises so many things, like an umami taste, magical moments, an end to environmental degradation caused by animal agriculture, and nothing less than saving the planet. Trust me, I literally pulled those examples right from their website. This burger is known as the Impossible Burger. The last time that an invented food had such grand environmental and social goals as the Impossible Burger was, well, probably Soylent. And if you haven't heard of either of these, you're not alone. Even the history of invented foods doesn't go back very far. I mean, up until the early part of the 20th century, we ate really similar foods to what our ancestors had eaten long before us. I mean, just about the farthest back I could find an example of us inventing a food in a laboratory was Velveeta. And I mean, that was 1918. Soylent was born in 2013. It's a Silicon Valley meal replacement powder that purportedly provides 100% of your daily nutrition. It's a food that only techies can truly love. It distills the act of eating down to its barest quantifiable benefits, which is caloric intake. The makers of Soylent describe it as food simplified for the better. Personally, there are other benefits to eating than just caloric intake. I mean, when I eat, I love eating with other people. It brings us together. There's a distinct social pleasure for me. During lunch, my wife and I love sitting on the couch and just talking about our morning and the rest of our days. It boggles my mind that everyone wouldn't enjoy this. But there's this weird, techie, Silicon Valley culture that resents eating. No, more than that. They're actively working towards ending thousands of years of culture and tradition. They hate eating. One of the most famous Silicon Valley techies out there, Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla, has been quoted saying, If there was a way that I couldn't eat so I could work more, I would not eat. I wish there was a way to get nutrients without sitting down for a meal. Lots of techies would agree with him. And unsurprisingly, this Silicon Valley techie startup culture 
is absolutely crazy about Soylent. The company has successfully raised millions and millions of dollars in fundraising. Their products probably are in a grocery store near you, but I get ahead of myself. You're probably wondering what it tastes like. Well, I don't know, but this guy named Keith Spencer of Salon Magazine tried it. He said, and I quote, that the powder's consistency falls somewhere between cornmeal and flour. Its smell is a combination of rancid vanilla and wet cardboard. It only takes a few sips for me to feel sick. It's as if my stomach knows that I shouldn't be drinking this. An hour after rinsing my throat out, I can still faintly taste it in the back of my throat. Before you go blazing over to Walmart to buy a year's supply based on that taste description alone, just hold on. Startups are also notoriously short-lived. They burn bright and they burn out. Soylent is far from burning out, but the torch of the next best thing has definitely been passed to something else. And that something else is the Impossible Burger. And yes, I actually went to try it. Okay, um, I'm going to order two original sliders. Don't. All the condiments on it. We don't put condiments on the burgers. Oh. We just put onion and pickle on them. Okay, just, just onion and pickle. All right. We can do that for Just you. that. Gotcha. Then two Impossible Sliders with all the normal stuff on it. Any cheese on those two sliders or the Impossibles? Let's do no cheese. Okay. Mm-hmm. This is a tasty burger. And then also two Impossible Sliders with just the patty. All right. No blood. No onion, no pickle. Uh, let's do just the bun. Just bun. Just okay. bun. All right. Is that it for you? That's it. Gotcha. It'll be nine seventy six. All right, I can do that. And then we ate them. I tried recording live audio of this experience, but it was poor quality. Here's the in the car driving home review of me and my wife. All right, it's Austin and Kelly, and we've just eaten our Impossible Burgers. And the audio that we got during the process wasn't that good, so we're just doing a post-take. So my thoughts after eating it was that I thought it it didn't didn't taste bad at all. It tasted like meat. Um... It, it had a uh, kind of spam-like texture to it, though. Like, it definitely was not something that felt like it belonged together. It definitely felt like it was just been pressed together. Uh, but I actually enjoyed it more than I enjoyed the questionable meat from the White Castle burger that purported to be real meat. So, I said, that's that's about all I got. What about you, Kelly? Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll just start with saying I didn't like either burger, <laughs> um, but the Impossible Burger was definitely more tolerable, I think, than the original sliders. As far as the Impossible Burger goes. It just was wrong to me. It just tasted wrong. Um, 
because in my opinion, like, they got the look of a burger, right? And they got the texture pretty close. But to me, the flavoring was just off. Like, it didn't taste like a regular hamburger to me. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you have a more refined palate than I do. Props to you. The taste of the Impossible Burger isn't the main reason that I'm so fascinated by it. Nor is it because it's the latest in a long line of silicon food startups seeking to make millions from investors out of Wall Street and eventually from us. It's pretty interesting how they're trying to expand beyond the techie echo chamber and bring a food to the public that people actually think tastes good. I mean, most of us aren't crazy enough to hate eating just because it makes us inefficient. I was fascinated by this environmental life cycle analysis, or LCA for short, from a lab called Qantas that compared the Impossible Burger to other methods of protein production. And I was fascinated because the maker of the Impossible Burger, or Impossible Foods, made a miscalculation. A big one. A food environmental LCA looks at the environmental impact of making a certain kind of food. The category of most interest was the CO2 emitted as a cost of production. Just a refresher, CO2 is a greenhouse gas that traps heat in our atmosphere. Conventional beef grown in feedlots and fed grain ran up an expensive cost. 33 pounds of CO2 emitted for every pound of animal protein produced. By comparison, the Impossible Burger looks like a godsend. Only 3.5 pounds of CO2 emitted for every pound of plant protein produced. That's around 90% better. So there you have it. Save the world, eat Impossible Burger, end of story, right? No. I tried reaching out to Impossible Foods for this episode, but I never heard back from them. Maybe it had something to do with their official stance on regenerative agriculture. For the record, Impossible Foods has declared their opposition to all forms of animal agriculture. They say, cows aren't getting any better at making meat. We are. They even call regenerative agriculture unsustainable at large scale. Since they make environmental concerns a foundation of their mission statement, I'm confused why they're so vehemently opposed to what I do. Every day I work on the farm, I believe that I'm doing my own part to sequester carbon and heal the earth. In a gesture of grand irony, a regenerative farm called White Oaks Pastures in Georgia got that same lab called Qantas to run an environmental LCA on their property. The results were astounding. White Oaks Pastures emits negative 3.5 pounds of CO2 for every pound of animal protein they produce. If that hurts your head, I understand. Think of it this way. For every pound of animal protein they emit they absorb 3.5 pounds of CO2 out of the air. Not emitted, absorbed. How is this possible? Well, CO2 has been sucked out of the air for as long as plants have used photosynthesis, and that's a very long time. Photosynthesis works by using sunlight as a catalyst to split apart CO2 molecules into separate carbon and oxygen molecules. The oxygen gets released back into the air, and the carbon gets used to build above and below ground biomass. The above ground biomass can get grazed by ruminants, and the below ground biomass will eventually decay into topsoil. And topsoil is very, very stable. 
Topsoil is much more stable than trees as far as carbon sinks go, since trees can burn. If you listen to my episode with Joel Salatin, you'd know that California's forests emitted more CO2 last year than they absorbed. That's because they are burning thousands of them. Trees have to be managed carefully once they are fully grown because a stray spark can send an entire forest load of CO2 back into the atmosphere. If you haven't listened to my episode on wilderness abandonment, now would be a good time. Basically, storing carbon as above-ground biomass in trees must coexist with high-density ruminant grazing to eliminate the fire load. I was recently talking to my dad and brothers about climate change and what we're doing on our farm. Like white oak pastures, we're a regenerative farm. We focus on sequestering atmospheric carbon into our soil by rotating our animals at high densities through successive pastures. If you've never seen anything you'd call magical, stop being a pessimist and visit our farm. I've seen a pasture that looked like dirt and scrub grass get given a high-density grazing event and three months of rest look like native Missouri prairie. My dad was wondering what we needed to do to combat climate change on a global scale. With a sigh of futility that marks so much talk of climate change, he opined, we need to get our best minds on this problem and invent something to fix it. But dad, what if we already have invented something? What if our climate problem isn't a technology problem best solved by Silicon Valley food startups like the Impossible Burger? What if it's a knowledge problem? What if we already have all the technology and infrastructure in place to sequester atmospheric carbon back into the soil, but there's just a knowledge gap. Let me explain. There's this company called Carbon Engineering in British Columbia who's building a machine eventually capable of imitating 40 million trees. Like, it pulls the equivalent of 40 million trees worth of CO2 out of the air. That's one megaton of CO2. And that's pretty cool. The budding technology is called direct air capture, and it basically acts like a giant air conditioning unit. Using a fan, it sucks air through this metal honeycomb structure, and as it passes through, a solution drips down the structure and captures some of the passing CO2. The CO2-rich solution falls into a giant holding tank, where it eventually gets distilled into tiny calcium carbonate pellets. Now, if this plant were truly doing the work of 40 million trees... They would store these pellets underground, never again to see the light of day. Trees turn CO2 into topsoil, and after all, topsoil doesn't move very far in nature. It just kind of stays there. But that's not what they do. This is a private, for-profit company, and it's backed by several big oil companies. They actually buy those calcium carbonate pellets for use in future oil extraction, Heating up the pellets releases the trapped CO2, and that helps empty oil pockets more efficiently. Yep, you heard me right. They are sucking the CO2 out of the air in one place and returning it to the air in another place. Let me say that I'm not at all against making a buck while saving the world. That's what we do. But this system relies on unproven technology and heavy government subsidization. Experts predict that governments like the U.S. would need to offer $100 or more in carbon capture credits to meet emission goals. Otherwise, the pellets won't be buried underground. They'll just be sold to make more oil. Oh, and one megaton of CO2 actually isn't all that much. 
To get to worldwide carbon neutral, we would need 40,000 of these plants, all sucking one megaton of CO2 out of the air and burying it underground forever, just like trees. This climate conversation mirrors another Western conversation we have daily. Diet. We get so hung up on thinking if we can just design some pill in a far-off laboratory, we can cure our high blood pressure, diabetes, and even boredom while we're at it. If you've ever survived watching Requiem for a Dream, you know what I mean. One of the main characters is an old lady who thinks that she wants to get thin enough to look pretty on a talk show she thinks she's been invited to. There's nothing wrong with her, but she decides to make a transformation. And where does she look? Not, not her diet. To pills. And more specifically, to speed. Let's face it. We Westerners are addicted to the idea that technology will solve our most challenging environmental problems. What's the solution to a problem technology created? More technology. My solution is this. Better farms. Using the same regenerative practices as White Oaks pastures, developing zero new technologies, and requiring zero governmental subsidies, farmers around the world could make significant strides towards naturally sucking all this man-made CO2 out of the air. A claim that I hear bandied about in regenerative agricultural circles is that if 50% of the ranchers in the world adopted some kind of regenerative agriculture, we could sequester all the atmospheric carbon since the industrial age in 10 years. I wish I could say that came from a peer-reviewed study, but I can't find anything so concrete. What's for sure is that a switch by 50% of ranchers would make a huge difference. If you as the consumer made a decision to start supporting regenerative farms, you could know that you were helping to make a dent in climate change. If you need any more convincing, listen to my interview with Will Harris. He owns White Oaks Pastures, where that environmental LCA was done. He was gracious enough to give me an interview, and I think you'll learn something new. He's got cattle in his blood and a Georgian drawl on his tongue. I think you'll like him. Here he is. Well, welcome to Let the Meat Grass, Will Harris. Thank you so much for joining us. Would you mind just introducing yourself to our listeners and telling us a little bit about your farm? Well, of course. Thank you for having me. I'm Will Harris. Uh, my farm is White Oak Pastures in Bluffton, Georgia. It's a multi-generational, multi-species, vertically integrated livestock farm that's been in my family since 1866. Uh, my, grand, my three grandchildren who live on the farm are the uh, sixth generation of my family to be on this same piece of land. Wow. I thought I thought it was crazy when I heard that you've been on it for over a hundred years. Like that's that's dedication and that's history right there. Um, one of your favorite sayings is that you're you say that nature abhors a monoculture. What do you mean by that? Well, a monoculture does not exist in nature. You know, you don't have a uh, naturally occurring in nature. You don't have a forest that's nothing but white oak trees or longleaf pine trees occupied by nothing but squirrels or nothing but foxes and the insects are nothing but mosquitoes. They just, you don't have a monoculture. Uh, uh, the bounty of nature comes from 
many, many, many different species of plants and animals and microbes all living in symbiotic relationships with each other. In industrial farming, as I did it for 20 years, as we continue to do it today over most of the world, is monocultural. It's you raise pigs in the pig house and chickens in the chicken house and cows in the cow pasture and tomatoes in the tomato field and so on. And that flies in the face of nature. And do you have any personal history, like seeing the difference between a monoculture and a polyculture on your farm? I do. Uh, this, this farm operated uh, as, a, as a monoculture from the early 50s until the uh, late 1990s. Uh, I personally ran the farm as a monoculture of cattle for 20 years before I started diversifying into other species. Today, we pasture raise five red meat species, cows, hogs, sheep, goats, rabbits, and we hand butcher them here on the farm. We pasture raise five poultry species, turkeys, chickens, geese, guineas, ducks, and we hand butcher them here in a separate facility on the farm as well as vegetables, organic vegetables, eggs, pastured eggs, honey, and just a number of other uh, species of animals that, that live here. And would you say that the farm is a lot healthier now than it was as a monoculture? No, there's no question. The land is far healthier and the animals are far healthier. It's, it's not even close. Now... I've also heard you say that all of your neighbors use monocultures. And what's it's curious to me because you know we we farm here and it's the same it's it's the same here. It's it's hard to grasp, but why don't they see what you see and how could they think that they are stewarding the earth in the same way that you're stewarding the earth? Well, my, my neighbors, I'm, I'm in the part of the uh, Georgia that is basic to uh, corn, cotton, peanuts, grown monoculturally in a rotation. And the fact is, it's a very profitable uh, cropping enterprise. All three crops are heavily subsidized. And uh, there's, you know, they, now these guys, you know, these are my friends and neighbors and relatives. I'm not being critical of them. They, they operate on very thin margins, just like I do. But there's not much risk in farming that way anymore with uh, federally subsidized crop insurance and a, a, you know, a futures market to uh, hedge prices. And it, it's, uh, uh, you know, the, these guys are, no, no, nobody's getting rich, but it's a, it's a good, safe way of making a living. And uh, and they they're farming the way their fathers farmed. We've been farming that way here since post World War II. Uh, it's what the uh, land grant universities advocate. It's what uh, the corporate extension uh, advocates. And th these are not bad people. Nobody's nobody is intentionally mistreating their land or the animals. But the metrics to measure 
land regeneration and animal welfare have not existed. You don't miss what you don't measure. So it's just what has evolved over the last 80 or so years. I see. The reason why that, that really spurred me to get into contact with you was this amazing study that I saw done on your farm of White Oaks in Georgia. And so there's this lab called Qantas that did something called a carbon footprint evaluation of your farm. And would, would you just mind telling us what they found on your farm versus the average farm? No, they found that uh, we actually sequester or, or pull down, draw down three and a half pounds of carbon dioxide equivalent for every pound of beef that we produce. So we are a carbon sink. Uh, uh, if you believe in climate change, as I do, and that man has impacted climate change, as I do, then uh, the way we farm actually uh, is, is positive for the environment, which should help correct climate change. And I think that's so incredible because it's like not only are all of your animals essentially at a neutral level for themselves, not only are they taking away all of their own greenhouse gas emissions, they're also, in the way that they're building carbon on the soil, they're sucking in greenhouse gases from other farms near you, like to the point of 3.5 pounds of CO2 per pound of animal. Like that's, that's incredible. Like you're helping the other farms around you by the way that you farm. So, and I mean, I know that it can get really, you can get very, very technical with how to describe that, but just in a very broad sense, how does regenerative agriculture build soil carbon in a way that tillage just doesn't? So uh, you know, we we believe in, in what's called holistic management, and that is uh, biomimicry, you know, emulating nature. You know, we try to recreate the cycles of nature that produce the bounty, the abundance that we is, is the wealth that we enjoy. We all enjoy. Uh, you know, in conventional agriculture, using tillage, chemical fertilizers, and pesticides, uh, the effect is it breaks the cycles of nature. The cycles of nature would be like the microbial cycle. The, the microbes live in the land and serve it the same way microbes live in your gut and serve you. And uh, tillage and pesticides break the microbial cycle. Uh, the carbon cycle, using chemical fertilizers, oxidizes the carbon in your soil. The carbon is organic matter, and it is the, uh, the, 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 the what, what causes a soil to be a living medium instead of a dead mineral medium. The water cycle is the uh, ability of the soil to absorb and hold water. 1% organic matter uh, will will absorb 20,000 gallons of water, which is about an inch of rain per acre. So our soil has gone from a half a percent organic matter to 5% organic matter. So it'll actually absorb four and a half more inches of rain than it would previously. 
there are many other cycles, the, the mineral cycle, the energy cycle, um, many. Uh, the way, just the, kind of the uh, a quick explanation is uh, our uh, plants grow, perennial plants grow in our pastures. Uh, they photosynthesize, absorbing the energy from the sun, breathing in greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide. They build root mass under the surface of the soil. The, the cattle or ruminants, sheep, goats, bite the grass off. That causes the roots to die back a little bit. We pull the cattle off and it, it starts again. They photosynthesize, put more root mass down that was previously greenhouse gas. And it, it, you know, it's, it's again, it's it's biomimicry, the emulation of nature. You know, the earth evolved with uh, ruminants uh, eating grass uh, with a high impact. Uh, think about big herds of buffalo or gazelles or caribou being moved by predators like wolves or polar bears or lions. Uh, so you have a, a, a hard impact to the plant, animal impact, biting it off. But then you have a very long recovery time for it to pull, photosynthesize and pull greenhouse gas down as, as root mount. It's, it's simply the way the earth evolved. And when we started farming industrially, um, using uh, tillage to uh, tear up the soil, uh, destroy the microbial cycle, the chemical fertilizers and pesticides. We just broke all those cycles. Hmm. So I think it's pretty safe to say that you don't practice tillage anymore, correct? The only tillage we do is on our small vegetable operation, and we're, we're trying to learn how to get past that. You know, we have to wean ourselves off these tools yeah, we certainly, you know, the uh, 3,200 acres that is white oak pastures, we uh, till about one acre. And I, I hope this time next year we're not doing that. That's incredible. And all this brings us to this thing called the Impossible Burger. And I know you've heard about it, but for our listeners, you know, the stated mission of the company is to save our ecosystems on the best planet in the known universe. And they want to make their burger from plant proteins rather than animal proteins. So two, two questions for you. So first, all of the things being equal, which they aren't, but we'll put that aside for the sake of the question. If I eat something that tastes real, won't its effect on my body be the same? Even if it, if it tastes like animal, but it's not animal, isn't it going to be the same as something that is animal that tastes like animal? Like, how differently will my body react to plant protein versus grass-fed beef? Well, you're, you're asking a, uh, a land steward and, and livestock uh, producer a food science question. And, uh, you know, let's, let's, let's stick to the land and the animals in the rural community for this interview. It's a good question, but I'm not the guy to answer it. All right, that's fair. All right, so uh, another another question. Um, they throw up some pretty impressive numbers uh, for the Impossible Burger. They 
Um, they found they, they're saying 96% less land, 87% less water, 89% fewer emissions. And they found that all that being said, that they still produce 3.5 pounds of CO2 per, I guess, pound of plant matter that they produce. And on your farm, they still found a, they found negative 3.5 pounds of CO2 per pound of animal protein. So would, would you agree that sounds like, you know, that you, all of the, all of those, those numbers that you still have a more sustainable operation than a tillage based operation? Yeah, now, now, now you're in, into a uh, subject model that I can respond to. So, uh, <clears throat> just very coincidentally, the environmental engineering outfit, Quantis, you mentioned earlier, that did the uh, life cycle analysis for Impossible Burger is the same environmental engineer that did uh, our life cycle analysis, and they reported only a month apart. And the Qantas reported that we sequester three and a half pounds of carbon dioxide equivalent for every pound of beef we produce. And Qantas uh, reported that Impossible Burger emits 3.5 pounds of carbon dioxide equivalent for every pound of vegetable-based protein that they produce. So uh, that's ironic that it was exactly the same amount, plus for them, minus for us. But what it means is if you want to sustain the, the uh, environment, not improve it, not, not damage it, you need to eat one pound of Impossible Burger for every pound of grass-fed beef that you eat, and then you'll break even. You know, I, I, let, me, let me just address plant-based protein in general. Uh, I am not opposed to plant-based protein in any way. I think that consumers deserve to have choices. I think that plant-based protein will replace a certain amount of uh, meat consumption in this country. That's fine. Consumers deserve to be able to buy what they want to. And if a consumer tells me that they choose to eat Impossible Burger rather than my beef, because they like the way it tastes, I fully respect that. If they tell me that they choose the Impossible Burger because it, uh, they can't bear the thought of eating what has been a live animal, I respect that. If they tell me that they just don't like the, the, the way meat feels in their mouth, I respect that. But I will not allow for the statement to be made that uh, Impossible Burger benefits the environment and white oak pastures damages the environment. That is unacceptable. It has been scientifically proven. And if you come to my farm and walk, you can see it. An untrained person can come to my farm, walk in my pastures, and, and see these things that I'm telling you about. It's teeming with life. The soil is a different color than the surrounding area. It's darker, uh, just visibly different. 
And it, it is not okay to say that uh, my way of producing food damages the environment and vegetable, uh, you know, conventionally farmed soybeans improves it. That is not okay. That's fair. And it seems like the major difference between your pasture-based operation and farms that Impossible Burger might partner with is that you're building soil carbon, whereas you know they're still practicing tillage. Um, I'm that, that that is correct, and uh, and they would be using uh, herbicides and uh, pesticides. They would be using uh, uh, probably probably GMO seeds, genetically modified seed. They would be using tillage. We we can go on and on. Uh, so I, you know, it's, it's it's not okay to say that that is more environmentally proper than what I'm doing. Absolutely unacceptable. You know, we I built uh, uh, six cabins on this farm for people to come and stay and look and see how we farm. We cook three meals a day, seven days a week to feed employees and guests because we want people to come here because we're fiercely proud of, of the way we treat the land and the animals. Wow. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad that you made that choice, um, that you're still making the choice to farm the way you do. And for anybody who's listening, just know that you can be environmentally conscious and you can want to save the planet and you can still eat grass-fed beef and you could feel good about it. Hey, Lunatics. If you have any questions or thoughts about this episode or want to sponsor a future one, follow me on Twitter at Missouri Austin or shoot me an email to austin at letthemeatgrass.org. I might even include your question along with my answer at the end of my next episode. If you live in the Missouri area and want to take the next step in radically protecting the health of you and your family, you can buy some of our pasture-raised food at my friend David's website, fedfromthefarm.com. That's F-E-D, fedfromthefarm.com. And use the offer code PDCST, like podcast without the vowels, for $10 off your next order. I am shamelessly promoting this, but since I manage this farm and personally take care of the animals, this is the only operation I can wholeheartedly endorse. We have buying clubs in Kansas City, Columbia, Jeff City, Washington, St. Charles, Chesterfield, and St. Louis that we drive to either once a week or once every two weeks. Don't be strangers. I want to hear from you. If you order food from fedfromthefarm.com, put a note in the comment section that you heard about us through this podcast. I'm attempting something revolutionary here. Due to my city delivery schedule, I would consistently get to meet my subscribers. I would love to swap stories, share laughs, and hear the story of what convinced you to become a lunatic. If I see you a few times, I'll probably even invite you to our farm. We do those tours free of charge. If you really enjoyed this podcast, subscribe or download it on whatever podcast directory you use. If you're using iTunes and are feeling mighty generous with the next five minutes of your life, please rate it and leave a review. The more reviews I get, the better my chances of being featured in a spotlight. And as self-serving as that sounds, the more attention this podcast gets means that I get to improve the production quality for you. Right now, I've managed to keep my entire budget for starting under 100 bucks. 
The music, cover art, and sound design have all been done by friends or relatives out of the goodness of their hearts. With your subscriptions and reviews, I can turn this podcast from a bi-weekly to a weekly podcast if I can start generating an income stream. But I'll need sponsors for that. Production assistance was provided by the kissable Kelly Williams. That's my wife. Music was performed by the bodacious Brandon Nelson. If you like Scandinavian folk music, you can find his album Old Yarns by Eloin. That's E-L-O-I-G-N at Bandcamp. Cover art was drawn by the radical Rebecca Rabin. Fact-checking was done by the daring David Boatwright. And sound engineering was done by the jubilant Jeffrey Hook. If you want any of these marvelous people to help you with your projects, just let me know. That's all I have for now. Until next time, how's Saudi?